We need more good new schools. That's uh, the argument our, our guest uh, today, Dr. Chris Hunger, makes in his uh, great new book called A Revolution in Education, Scaling Agency and Opportunity for All. I'm Tom Vanderick, and you're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and we have the extreme pleasure of being joined by uh, a friend of the show, Dr. Chris Unger. Chris, so good to have you here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on. And uh... Chris, we appreciate you and uh, the work that you've been doing at uh, at Northeastern, and just we we love this book. This is so, it was so much fun. Uh, it's been fun to watch you write this and uh, to talk to you about it, and uh, it's it's a treat to spend a little bit of time on it now. In, in reading the book, I was trying to figure out sort of where and how you came to the revolution. In the book, you, you argue that we need schools that are learner-centered, self-directed, agency-oriented. I love that. Project-based, competency-based, community-embedded. Um, it's so much the vision of getting smart. When, when and how did you, do you think you came to that as a vision for what a good school looks like? Great story. Uh, great, great, great question. Um... So I, I ended up in uh, Seattle, right, uh, and uh, living up on Capitol Hill. I landed in Seattle, loved it, loved being in Seattle, was given the opportunity to be a high school redesign coach in the Seattle Public Schools from 2001, 2004. I actually worked with 11 of the high schools, you know, Franklin, Roosevelt, Ballard, you know, you got this, and then Nova which they refer to themselves as the, the only democratic high school west of the Rocky Mountains. I'm not sure that's true. And then, and then Marshall High School. And we were talking right before the podcast how Nova was really, really extreme. Not terribly extreme, but extreme in the sense that it had like a college, college schedule. Kids were in classes from 9 to 10, 20, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, maybe Tuesdays and Thursdays from 1 to 3. They were taking like U.S. history through jazz. They were thinking about like, you know, looking at chemistry through women's movement. Uh, I mean, they were doing some very sort of out of the box kind of uh, classes. There was a, the thing that really struck me about it is that because, and first of all, I got to say this, it was in this old, beautiful, old, um, old, you know, those old elementary school buildings that were all wooden and they're you know, 15 foot ceilings and like 15 foot uh, windows. And there's lots of light coming in and streaming in and you can walk around and hang out. So because of the college schedule, kids were hanging out with teachers, kids were hanging out with kids, teachers were, you know, and so relationships were forming. People were not just going from one period to the next on a 45 minute rotating basis throughout the day. And that just blew my mind that there was actually a school like that. So I thought, wow. And then, of course, I went to Marshall High School, and I'll do the quick version of this. This is, uh, and maybe this is not exactly the right way to put it, but my memory of it is when the kids started acting out in all the other high schools, they would throw all the kids in this one school. Like, oh, they're acting out here. Let's put them in this other context, right? Well, the kids, the teachers got to know the kids. The kids got to know the teachers. It's much smaller. Relations were built. Guess what? Kids stopped acting out. And, you know, so in, in their infinite wisdom, what do you do? Oh, the kids are fixed. Let's send them back to the other high schools. <laughs> so so that was a, a, a real awakening to be able to be a school, a high school coach, high school redesign coach in the Seattle public schools 
at 11 different high schools just put me right into the into the trenches and well, the, the second chapter of your book is the tragedy of the current system so that's sort of the flip side that it sounds like nova helped you introduce you to a, a world of possibilities but it, it also sounds like working in seattle was introduced you to the the tragedy of the the limitations and and confines of the current system is that yeah, yeah. I mean, I learned that over time and, uh, you know, there in Seattle and then eventually uh, to kind of fast forward a little bit, um, you know, I ended up uh, moving, going to Brown University um, and working uh, districts all up and all around New England and New Jersey, New York. Uh, I ended up from 2004 to 2008 or nine as a small learning community coach. Right. So now I'm back in the trenches. <laughs> So I worked in uh, Waterbury, Hartford, Boston, Fall River, uh, Yonkers, Newark. I mean, I was all over the place. And that's when I really began to see how the system functioned on top of that. Um, again, fast forwarding is uh, a friend of mine at Brown University got a grant from the feds to work with uh, all the state departments of education up and down the eastern seaboard. Um, on how they can support and assist school and district improvement. Because, you know, with NCLB around and everybody focused on raising math and ELA scores, there was this whole sort of mindset that we're going to improve schools by uh, turning up the, uh, turning up the uh, heat. And uh, I can say, hey, look, you know, you better get those ELA and math scores up because that's your proxy for being a really good school, right? And like, come Right. And so so I, I worked with the State Departments of Education and I began to see how it was um, the whole system was designed to perpetuate sort of the structures and practices that had been inculcated over time and, and in a sense, uh, really acted to sustain the status quo of what we see as school now. So, and then we know the outcomes are not good. It's good for some kids, but I mean, everybody's talked about this. You talk about this. There are some kids that can thrive in that, but I would say 90% of the kids are not being well served. And I know at least 20 or 30 or 40% are very well not being served. Chris, a uh, 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 quick uh... Editorial comment about small learning communities, because uh, this uh, you, you and I have been on this parallel path for 25 years. Um, you, you'll remember in the in the 20, in the 2000s, um, on one hand, uh, at the Gates Foundation, we were helping to stand up 1,200 new schools around the country, and that worked r remarkably well. And then we worked with 800 um, struggling high schools and and trying to encourage them to incorporate um, small learning communities. Uh, and, and as you suggested, at best, that was a, a mixed bag. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. But in short, the, the, the only difference between a really good new small school and a big comprehensive high school is everything, right? It's everything about those, the structure, the schedule, the culture, the aspirations, the relationships, the connections to community. All of those things are different. And so just a, a, a simple construct of trying to break a big school into, into smaller schools just by itself, it's probably insufficient. 
Um, there are good examples of that r remaining. Um, uh, and in, in modern day, I would say that the, the Career Academy movement that was sort of restarted with, um, with NAF and uh, the link learning effort that the Irvine Foundation stood up, those are pretty good examples of a comprehensive approach that includes but isn't limited to small learning communities. But I think both of us have become such big fans of new schools because it's so much easier to capture a new set of aspirations, a new set of strategies, a new set of relationships than it is to try to do that in a in an existing school. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, uh, yes, uh, for sure, and that's borne out in, as you know, and and by the way, I need to give you a, I, you know, not that you need it, Tom, but I got to give you a huge shout out here because a lot of the stuff that has we've learned over time and the things that we've uh, some of the best things we've seen that come together over time is a result of the work you were doing in the early 2000s uh, with the Gates Foundation and assisting supporting the startup of these new places. I mean, you had your hands in with high tech, high big picture learning. Uh, I think, you know, I know Gates uh, supported the, the development of SOTA, which then were the three uh, high schools in Tacoma, I mean, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> you you really, 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 uh, and you continue to do it in your work right now, but, you know, you were instrumental, obviously, in a lot of what we've learned from then. The question, though, let me point it back about the tragedy, if we can jump into it, right? Like, the big tragedy is that you have, you know, foundations now. Uh, you have organizations like yourself and you say, here are ways we can do school differently and here are some models and here are some prototypes and you can aspire to do this and it's good for kids. Well, that's great. And then you have foundations, um, you know, there's a number of foundations or, you know, the Kaufman Foundation is supporting the, I know you're very integrated in that work in the Kansas City area. You've got unbelievable stuff, but I can go on and on about all of these and then, of course, uh, Steve Jobs, Lauren, uh, wife uh, Lauren Powell created the XQ Super School thing. And then you have the Walton Family Foundation. And I know that you got this big push for the micro school, you know, which I – awesome. That is just super awesome that you are assisting and supporting and finding a way to support the startup of these micro schools, right, which we need. But the – like. To point I want to get to is this. Why is it that these schools and these new contexts of learning and uh, learning environments and learner-centered uh, sort of families, if I can call them families, I, I, I do that purposefully, why does it have to be done by hook and by crook? Why does it? Why do foundations and philanthropies have to be the ones that assist or support or incentivize that? Why, you know, why? Where's the government in this? Where's the state government in this? Why? Why are we relying by hook and by crook? It's almost like uh, if you don't forgive me for pointing this picture out, but I don't know if you. Do, sometimes we walk around in uh, downtown in a city and there's sidewalks and cement and then you see a crack in the sidewalk and there'll be a, a flower that's popping up between the cracks it's like it feels like for us to start schools it's like you know you you have to it 
you, you, you have to find like the crack. You have to find the relationships. You have to get the foundation to support it. Like it just that is the thing that is bothering most right me most right now is why are we having to rely on like you and foundation? I mean, there's a reason that you should be there, but and I can get to that. But the point is, I am so hung up on this issue that. By hook and by crook, some people have been able to create these incredible learning environments that really benefit kids, but like the system is not supporting or assisting that. Right. So, Chris, let me let me just acknowledge. I, first of all, I super appreciate um, the comments that you made about things that I was involved in. But the the the, the irony of my professional career is that I, at the very same time I was discovering New Tech Network and uh, high tech high and big picture learning and EL education and urban assembly. Um, I was also helping to stand up what became NCLB and it sort of locked in the testing regime. And the, and the hope was that this bipartisan consensus around measurement uh, through equity um, and strong accountability systems. I had this notion that progressive education uh, could coexist with, with a measurement, and we both know how that worked out, right? That basically swamped the entire system uh, for, for the last 25 years, and it, it sort of locked in the the tragedies of the current system, as, as you described. And uh, and so that that's sort of the big unintended consequence of my career. Um, and so I'm, I, I have a lot of culpability for creating conditions that made it harder to create uh, new schools and innovation in existing schools. Um, so I, I think that's part of the answer that we, we locked in a system based on 1950s psychometrics. We didn't know how to measure growth, so we just grabbed onto proficiency. <laughs> we've, we've sort of driven that into the ground of being hyper-focused on grade level uh, proficiency measures and I think that's really tied the hands of a lot of educators interested in doing things that you described, being more learner-centered, being uh, more competency-based, being more more project-based. Yeah. I want to I want to I want to say something that I feel is important. I want to acknowledge and put forth here is and this is because often when I talk about the the tragedy of the system and uh, the unfortunate circumstances we're thrusting upon students. I, you know, other educators, whether you're a classroom educator, you're a school leader, a district leader, or even if you're a policy actor in systems, uh, they feel like I'm bashing on them. But what I really want to make clear, right, is that that the as much as the kids are the victims of this system that we've designed and we continue to perpetuate, it's it's the educators the school leaders and the district leaders and in some ways policy actors that are also the victims of the design because if if you are if you're if you're told by your district leader you have to get your ELA and, and math standards up then you're going to do what you can to do that and the same with the state to the and so everybody the system basically is perpetuated this you know un, unfortunate set of circumstances where everybody is a victim 
Yeah, Tony Wagner used to say, uh, "No shame, no blame." But now, now we got to get busy, right? We we did inherit we, we had to inherit these context variables. So, Chris, w- one of the things we're talking to Dr. Chris Unger, by the way, he's um, author of this great new book. It's called Revolution in Education. Scaling agency and opportunity fraud. We're going to come back and talk about that subtitle because I I love that scaling agency and opportunity for all. Chris, your your book um, it really calls for a new mission of schools. One um, one in which we engage students in exploring and pursuing their interests and passions and foster student agency by supporting them and making a difference in the world. That's really a beautiful statement of school. And I, I just want to acknowledge how different it is than the historical ways we've thought about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I want to acknowledge that I'm not the only one. That's, I mean, there are a number of people. I mean, i kind of learning from everybody else, too, but I'm, I'm glomming onto that as well. I mean, how do you not how could you argue against agency and possibility for your kid? I mean, think about you as a, a, a father or a mother or a, a guardian or what have you, whatever. And then, of course, I think that if you ask any educator, they would say, yeah, I want agency. But like, that's not my job. That's not what I'm expected to do. I'm expected to get these reading scores. So we got a big issue there, right? <laughs> yeah, we do. Um I, in some ways, Chris, I feel like um, we, we called this out in Difference Making, our our last book. Um, and thanks for mentioning that in here, by the way. But I felt like in writing Difference Making, I sort of rediscovered agency as, as a central developmental theme for schools. And have you known about this for a long time? Or I, was li- I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and my mother was living in L.A., but I talk about in the book, like the escalator ride of schooling, like, okay, you graduate from middle school, take the next escalator, graduate from high school, take the next escalator, next escalator, graduate from college. And then the question is, now what? What do I really want to do with my life? Uh, how do I want to live? And, you know, the social media says, well, you, you're going to get a three-bedroom house, two-car garage, and you go to Disney World every, every summer. But nobody's asking me, what do I really want? Right? So... Like we're not allowing, we're not supporting kids' sense of agency. And I would throw this in there. I don't know if you would like this or not. Like I want them to feel agentic, that they can pursue what they want. to. This is the make a difference stuff, right? But it's sort of like, how do you design your life and not feel like just life happens to you? And if you can feel like you can be the designer of your life and contribute back to humanity, like that is the ultimate outcome, I think, for school. Chris, let's um, let's do uh, let's do a lightning round on on schools that exemplify some of the dimensions that you talk about. Um, so, this idea of of a school or a system that helps kids figure out uh, their identity, to helps kids identify interests and passions. Who does that well? Well, you know, you know what I'm going to say here. Uh, I'm going to talk about One Stone because you're, I know you're, you are greatly acquainted with One Stone. It's focused all on that. Uh, Wayfinding is a big piece of stuff, which we can get into. If people haven't been into wayfinding, think about like, how do you find your way through life? How do you explore your interest? How do you explore your Their wayfinding system, they call it living in beta, which they cycle through a couple of times 
helps kids ask questions about who am I, what am I interested in, what kind of difference do I want to make? Yep. Uh, so wayfinding is huge with them, but the you know I think uh, Design Thirty Nine down in San Diego uh, is an a, yeah um, big picture learning. Obviously, they've been around for uh, twenty years or so, doing uh, great things. I love Iowa Big. I love the Tacoma schools, what they've done. Uh, John Kettler and his crew have been grown over the last 15 years. So does Sammy and IDA. I love those guys. Uh, let me let me interrupt there and say on the community embedded, uh, Soda was was a, uh, my, my, one of my first examples of, um, of seeing a school that was truly community embedded. You know, where students are actually learning in a glass museum, an art museum, a natural history museum, a theater, a university. And who, who else would you say in community embedded or place based is really good? Well, this is kind of a, a an, an outlier or a different. I don't want to say it's an outlier. It's a different. It's a different kind of thing. It's you. You taught. You spoke of NAF and. I Mike Rialon at uh, the Olympic High School. He's now at Palisades High School in Charlotte. Uh, I refer reference that quite a bit because we're talking about a large high school that broke into five career academies. They uh, it was the National Academy Foundation when they joined. Now it's NAF, and they were have been several times identified as sort of like the gold standard in uh, having their career academies and sort. But the the thing that I really like about that is, I mean, we're talking about a neighborhood, right? When I might not have it exactly right, but a social context. First of all, Charlotte, by the way, and I hate to say this, people will be not happy with me saying this, but Charlotte, yeah, of the 50 largest cities in the United States, I think was recognized at least a few years ago as being the 50th in socioeconomic mobility, which means if you are born poor, you're likely to stay poor, um, which is not a good thing. So what does Olympic High School do? They're, they create internships, career trajectories. They do a, a version of wayfinding with their kids in ninth grade and 10th grade. And these kids, in some cases, are doing internships in the community, in all the, in the hospitals and in, in uh, um, advanced manufacturing centers and so forth and so on. And they might be making 15 bucks an hour. And by the way, they graduate and go into some of these places making $40,000 a year with dental health vacation and their employer will pay them to go to community college. And so you've got a community where uh, it may be $22,000 or $24,000 of median income for a family, and you got a kid who's graduating from high school making $40,000. It is now the breadwinner of their family. I, you know, to me, that's the kind of community connected thing that, you know, they did Habitat for Humanity Houses. I just, it's, it's different in the sense that the other schools we've been talking about, they're, they're, they're sort of homegrown. They grew out of a, a passionate uh, educator who was able to, by hook and by crook and through serendipitous connections and resources and some, you know, able to grow things. But here is a high school that transformed itself I, I, partly as a result, by the way, and I don't know if you knew this, there was a um, there was a, uh, a judge who basically uh, determined there was a lawsuit and determined that uh, 
that the high schools, including Olympic at the time, was uh, performing academic genocide. I mean, that is the language. Now, academics is not the most important thing to me. We could argue and quibble with that. But academic genocide does not feel very good. More importantly, these kids who are graduating all across the country are saying, well, now what? What do I want to do? Where do I want to go? And if they end up working at the auto mechanic shop, which is not a bad thing if you want to do it, or scooping ice cream, I mean, is that the best we can do for not just our kids, but for our, our communities? It's, it drives me crazy. Oh, sorry. I'm a little. Well, uh, so we'll come back to that. What, what do we do as a result? Um, but two, two more categories. Um, favorite project-based schools. Who's doing that really well? Um, I like Charlotte Lab School in Charlotte. Charlotte Lab School. They, um, they got that going on. Mary, you know, Mary Moss uh, got her start as a school leader at the New York City High School, the kind of a challenge, uh, challenge-based learning school, community-connected projects, still one of my favorites. Um, Mary's terrific. Love what she's doing in Charlotte. How about High Tech High? You haven't mentioned that yet. We yeah, high tech, high, right? I mean, exactly. I mean, to, to me, it was like a learning journey to kind of fold back to the original thread. I mean, Nova was there, but I, I quickly found out about big picture and then that got me crazy. Then I learned about the Tacomas thing. And so I've, it's a learning journey for me. And then I learned about high tech, high. And of course, I went down and visited in 2009, one of their first, uh, you know, the events they held every April. I think they have everybody come in there. Um but then, you know, and then about five or six or seven years ago, I just I actually was asked to at Northeastern to kind of explore the opportunity to develop a, a network, uh, a, a network based on experiential learning. And so I just went out of my way to find all these people who I felt were probably doing things right by kids in experiential learning. And that's where I just started and experiential learning, we got to mention EL Education, used to be Expeditionary Learning, ELEducation.org. They have my favorite design principle, which is the having of wonder, wonderful ideas. Yeah, well, so somebody just, you know, Northern Cass School District just came on my radar about two or three months ago. Uh, you know, it's a small 700 student high, uh, you know, school system district, 25 miles northwest of Fargo, North Dakota. But you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's the interesting question. Is like I, I asked Corey Steiner, the superintendent, like, how did you get this thing up and running? And he says, well, I just engaged the community. I talked with parents. I talked with kids. I talked with their educators. I talked with, you know, and I said, you know, this is actually, you know, I think he says something like this. I remember exactly right. He says, do we do a, do we give a, do we provide our students with a pretty good edu, educa, education? And everybody's like, yeah, we do. We, we, we're pretty good. You know, we, we, we're doing what we're supposed to do, right? Are we delivering a world-class education? And that's when we're like, well, what does a world-class education mean? I, I think that's the juxtaposition we have to do. Are we doing okay or could we do better? And if we say we can do better, what does better mean? And then how do you get engage, engage everybody in that conversation? Because it's not a top-down thing. So I, I like what's going on at Purdue Polytechnic and the Keanu Will. Really best in class at, at Clan Connected Projects. Keanu Warren and, you know, Scott Best who started. And then, Keanu, I mean, that's a cool pivot, right? I like they started those, those larger high schools 
that's a whole story in and of itself. And by the way, I can plug the podcast, episode six of season three, Scott Best, Keanu Warren, what they're doing. They're in pretty- we'll, uh, we'll add it to the show notes, and including our chat with uh, Kiana and Scott. Yeah. Oh, it's unbelievable. So your, uh, your, your book concludes, we need a lot more new schools and that states ought to have a, a big role to play. They ought to be playing a leadership role and helping to form great new schools around new aspirations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the question, right? Is the, you know, the states. So why, why is it that, so Tom, you're a big part of all this, you know, better than me, like at least 10 times, 20 times, a hundred times better than me, right? The, the intricacies of these things. It's sort of like, we saw how high tech high got up and running. And then by the way, I need to mention that all these, when I look at big picture, high tech high, even, even, um, Charlotte lab school, uh, Iowa big, when I dig into it, it's all the result of serendipity. It just happens to be this person with an, an a passion and, an, and a vision wore their ideals and their passion on their shirt sleeves and, and some, some connection, some relationship, some communication, it sparked a connection or a resource that activated that thing to mobilize and come to life. My biggest point, which I started this whole conversation, is like, why do we have to rely on serendipitous events to to have these things? So who's in charge of education? Well, the states are. So, you know, now I'll put it this way. and I'm not sure how this is going to fly with you, Tom, but I I even thought for a little while, just as a, a thought experiment, people don't have to like this. What if there were no districts? What if there were no districts at all? And what if, for example, your big push for micro schools, and maybe there were five or six other uh, groups like yourself, says, uh, if you want to start a school in your community that looks like this, we will assist and support you to start this school. And by the way, the state is going to, instead of you having to get monies from the Walton Family Foundation to assist and support these startup schools, what if the state? gave you and your group monies to assist and support the startup of 300 schools over the next three years across communities in the United States. Like I just, that's, that's where my brain goes is sort of like, what are the, we're assuming things have to be the way they are. Can we do some thought experiments and ask, well, if this is really cool here, how could the state support that? How could the state incentivize that? And what policies would need to come into play to really allow those things? I don't think we have to get rid of high school uh, for districts. I mean, you could incentivize. So Design 39 is a good example, right? Design 39, right? The superintendent says, I want a 39th school in the district to be out of the box in something different. And assisted and supported a group of educators to, I, I think they even flew to, to Bali, they go see the green school and a school in London. And they went to some schools in Northern California and they went to some schools in Corpus Christi. They came back and they created this incredible new school in Poway. I mean, you know, like why isn't every district not doing that? It, it, it's, you know, and I'll stop here. I decided we're going to talk about food. So let me put it this way. We're really good at having, okay, you ready for this? Really good at having it. McDonald's Elementary, Burger King Middle, and Cafeteria High School. And you know why? Because you can 
all the things are in place and you can ensure that everybody's getting the right burger at the right temperature and getting the fry and get it, you know, and it doesn't take, you're not, you, you don't need a lot of chefs to do that. You just need to have the right systems. I hate to say that, but. Uh, a lot of consistency, but uh, maybe not the quality we uh, should be expecting. Why does everybody have to go to McDonald's Elementary? Like why, you know, where do kids, kids and families, why can't you have the choice of the environments that are really going to assist and serve you best depending on who you are and what your interest is and so forth and so on. So you should have a number and variety. Nobody wants to eat McDonald's. By the way, there is a movie about eating McDonald's for an entire year. You know how that went down. So, so think about that, right? <laughs> and then the other thing about this is, and I don't know if you want to take off on this, but I have been using AI. I'm not sure we're going to get into this. AI has come up. And people are beginning to use AI, and I'm working with educators across the country to use AI to design learning. I want to put AI in the hands of kids to so they design their own learning. So, so going with the food thing, if you can follow this, instead of us cooking all the food and giving it to the kids, well, shouldn't we be teaching kids and assisting kids to cook their own meals? Because once they graduate out of high school, you got to survive on your own. What ingredients can I find? What supermarket can I go to? How can I make something really cool for the in-laws that are coming in, right? Like we are not teaching kids how to cook. We are serving them all the time. And like if we don't turn that around and get kids to think about how am I agentic, what can I do in the world, and how can I do that, they're going to end up being served throughout. And that's what they're going to be looking to when they graduate from high school or college. So what we should be doing ultimately is teaching all the kids how to be chefs. And, and like you said, using AI as a project tool. Use the AI with the kids. Not, you know, I'm designing for you what I'm, I'm working with educators now across the country and I'll get a shout out to the New Hampshire learning initiative. That's another group of people, uh, network of 25 districts in New Hampshire and we are, Carolyn Eastman and I are going to be working with that network on how to use AI to develop student interest-driven, competency-based learning, and then how to design community career-connected learning. And then one of the cool things that we've been doing is exploring how to use AI to create systems where you actually activate your profile of a learner or portrait of a graduate in all of your systems. Because if you have a portrait of a graduate and you don't do anything with it. So a great, great, great example of that is uh, projectleo.net uh, from Da Vinci schools. Great example of a network of high schools using uh, in their case, um, chat GPT to help students um, frame, stand up projects, build rubrics, um, and conduct community-connected projects. So I think a, a great example of agentic, community-connected, project-based learning. Yeah, yeah. And there, and what, what Stephen and those guys are doing, because I just talked with them last week, right? It's like you're not cooking for them. You're cooking with them, right? Like that, that's, that's the best way to learn and how to be agentic is to 
be apprenticed or have someone by your side assisting and supporting you to be agentic and then releasing you into the world to find your agency yourself. Chris, thank you for your work. Uh, thank you for your blogs. We love your, uh, your weekend blast on the revolution. And thanks for this great new book, A Revolution in Education, Scaling Agency and Opportunity for All. It is, um, it's a great book. Everybody ought to read it. Um, parents would get a lot out of it. Um, teachers would love it. School administrators would, uh, would learn a, a thing or two. We, we both hope that it would uh, encourage them to start some great new schools. Chris, thank you for being with us. Thanks for writing the book. Thanks for everything you do. And thanks to our producer, Mason Pasha, and the whole Getting Smart team that makes this possible. And until next time, keep learning, keep leading, and keep starting new small schools for equity. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at GettingSmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.